people say the league was a failure. It wasn't a failure. It fueled what came after it. It was there that all the people that started playing the game during the NASL 1968 to 1984 got their love of the game and uh, played. And then when the MLS came out in 96, those were the group of people I think who'd seen the game who really thought, this is it, we're going to go for it. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, everybody. Tim Hanlon here. This is Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Thank you for joining me. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, If you're a return visitor, we uh, thank you for coming back as well. We appreciate all your social goodness and uh, input and emails. uh, Fantastic so far. Thank you so much for supporting the show uh, so early in our journey together. Today, we're focused on professional soccer. People who know me know that uh, that is a personal uh, interest of mine from a long time ago and arguably the impetus for getting this podcast underway. My old uh, reminiscences of the uh, uh, old North American Soccer League, uh, the Cosmos in particular in New York, and the star-studded players that uh, grace the fields of Giant Stadium. My guest today is Bobby Moffitt, uh, the longtime stalwart defender for the Dallas Tornado franchise of the NASL, which uh, frankly lasted a whole lot longer, uh, perhaps uniquely so, uh, than many of the franchises in the NASL that seem to come and go with great regularity. Bobby is one of those rare uh, players that uh, not only spent his entire American soccer career with one franchise, uh, but also got to see the NASL from arguably it's some of its darkest days uh, when it was only six teams in the circuit in 1970 to by the time he retired in 77, a league that had grown and mushroomed perhaps a little egregiously so to 24 franchises and seemingly an unending success story yet to come. Uh, we all know how that sort of came to an end uh, a number of years later, but you're going to hear from Bobby some great stories and some pretty good insight as to uh, why the old NASL was important and frankly, a whole bunch of work that uh, that Bobby did and uh, amongst his other teammates uh, at the grassroots level back in the 70s in the Dallas Metroplex area and then more broadly by playing in the United States uh, at a time when soccer was not necessarily uh, the gangbuster sport uh, both participatory and certainly spectator, as it is today. Uh, so we uh, look forward to a couple of moments here with Bobby Moffitt uh, from the old Dallas Tornado coming up in a second. Before we get to it, I want to remind you that all of your good seats still available information needs can be met at our website, probably the best place, goodseatsstillavailable.com. All one word. Uh, everything is there for you. All the feeds, all the places that our podcast is available uh, a place where you can send us some email, connect with us. Otherwise, if there's some stories or suggestions that you have, uh, commentary, whatever it is, please send it along, and, and we're more than happy to hear what you've got uh, on your mind, both good and bad. Uh, it's goodseatsstillavailable.com, and, and it'll tell you where where you can find us on social media and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, so again, thank you for your early support, and uh, we've got tons more in, in store for you in the, in the months to come, and um, hopefully you'll stick with us as we uh, explore all that stuff. Okay, let's uh, not waste any more time. Let's get right to our conversation with the legendary Bobby Moffitt, the old Dallas Tornado.
so we welcome to our microphones the uh, inimitable Bobby Moffat. Uh, and I guess, Bobby, maybe the best place to start is kind of at the start of your your Dallas Tornado and United States soccer experience, um, circa, I guess, 1970-ish. Uh, how did you even get into the world of American soccer, which admittedly at that time uh, was kind of on life support? It certainly was. Um, Ron Newman, who was uh, a well-known soccer coach, uh, player in England, uh, I watched him play at Portsmouth, my hometown club, Pompey as they're called. And then when I went to Gillingham after I left Portsmouth, a uh, football club, Pompey, uh, Ron was there. So he left after a year to come to the States and played in the 1967 league, the MPSL. And uh, he then came recruiting to England in 1969, looking for people to go on a tour. The remainder of the tour the club was taking, the Dallas Tornado, uh, of England, uh, Scotland, and uh, parts of Europe and also looking for players for the 1970 season. So that's how that went about. So Ron Newman was the guy instrumental in bringing you over to the States. Correct. Well, in addition to that, right, he's also probably one of the biggest pillars of the sport in keeping it going and, and frankly, thriving in the years to follow, no? In Dallas, uh, he has a very strong legacy, and he did that in, in Atlanta and other places, uh, and a curious part of that is, I mean, we're, we're friends. Uh, we still talk fairly regularly in email and uh, so on and so forth, as a lot of the old Tornado players do. But the uh, the fee for the game when they transferred me was that they play a friendly game at Chelmsford where I was playing for my services. All the proceeds would go to the Chelmsford Football Club. So that was the deal run arranged. He was quite a canny individual, both on and off the field of play. Still is. Yeah, well, um, obviously, uh, somebody we'd like to get on the podcast at some point. So after we're finished speaking, I'm obviously going to try to see if I can get some contact information. Um, but all right, so so give me a sense then of what you stepped into. I mean, it's probably a different world that maybe even you were expecting, despite the friendship with Ron and 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 his, you know, I'm sure assurances that uh, this was a, a a worthwhile enterprise. But I mean, you're in the prime of your of your soccer playing career. And all of a sudden you're thrust into this league that only had geez at the time, what six teams. Yes. It was a strange situation. We didn't know going in that it would only be that low, but there were also international games. So they also counted three or four teams came over and played all the teams. So there was a round robin effect uh, in effect. And uh, there was 24 games that were played. Uh, we weren't very much up on, the cost of living and, and uh, otherwise and such as that, but we, we quickly learned. And uh, what we did, we played and we had to get a second job. So that was a very interesting part. Getting used to the fields, uh, sometimes with baseball diamonds on them was very, very interesting. And uh, traveling, of course, in Britain, I'd never flown until 1979 when we went from England to play in France on the tour. So Flying to all the games was certainly a new thing, and uh, all the attachments in the houses here, like the uh, the bit you put down your sink and you uh, squirt it down, and all those types of things, the ice maker, there wasn't too much uh, an occurrence uh, in, in Britain, but there certainly were here. So quite a few changes, but the big thing that made it interesting and nice was that the people were so friendly. So it, it, it sounds like it became more of an adventure than sort of something to be burdened by. Well, after the season, June and I, with Diana, our one-and-a-half-year-old son, 
we drove straight down from Dallas to Mexico City, and I trained down there for three weeks. And uh, then we drove back, which is something you certainly wouldn't want to do now. Well, what were you it doing? It was an adventure, yes. Sure. So uh, part of that adventure then, I guess you said, was was working, I guess, a day job or, or side jobs. What, what was – how did that sort of come about? Because the season obviously wasn't all that long, not many teams. What were you doing either in the offseason and or maybe even during the season off the field? The players that stayed through the year – had regular jobs. Roy Turner worked at a car dealership. <laughs> Louis Jurassic worked at a, a transmission shop, but not too many players had full-time jobs. And my first job was with Hunt Oil in the mailroom, which was a very, very privileged job, uh, which I certainly got out of. And uh, the club had found me that. And they weren't the best at finding you jobs. Uh, I ended up trying to sell vacuum cleaners and encyclopedias. And uh, in the end, Worked at a place called Green Hill School where I cut the grass and trimmed uh, the bushes and uh, worked out in the heat for 40 hours a week, which was good training for the uh, the game when you play on the weekends. <laughs> did you did you ever question the move, though, given that you were basically working a, a, a day job or a bunch of different odd slash day jobs and, and, and playing uh, versus arguably maybe being in a more full-time professional atmosphere and uh, it back in England. There was a bit, uh, Harry Tate, that's an English expression for all over the place. Uh, Paul Waters, lovely man. Uh, he was the chief executive of the club at the time. Uh, though I don't think he had that title. He put things together for Lamar Hunt. Uh, he said that I wouldn't have a problem getting a job and that June, my wife, she had her own hairdressing business, wouldn't have a problem getting a job. But June did have a problem getting a job. And the job I had was in downtown Dallas, where they offered June a job as well, but they didn't coordinate. So when we got over here, we were told to get a place up in north of Dallas in Richardson, the next city. So the jobs we were given were an hour away each time. So there wasn't a lot of uh, continuity there. So that was a point of dispute. And uh, yes, it was mentioned a few times, but in the end, the job, the, the club, Ron Newton, got me the job cutting grass at Green Hill School. And uh, we got by. The interesting thing is they wanted, a, halfway through the summer, another worker. So I got Oreco, who was a World Cup winner with Brazil in 1958. So sure. uh, there was a disparity between our, our careers. We were both working at the same job in America. <laughs> <laughs> almost like going to that's the... A, uh, that's a Donald Trump uh, uh, no, fact. He it's almost, almost like one. going to, the, uh, to, the, uh, to get your driver's license. It's the great equalizer, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, it, it does sound that, though, you took to uh, uh, the Tornado, the North American Soccer League, and Dallas in particular. Um, there's a quote here. I, there was an article written about Kyle Rote Jr. a couple of years ago. Uh, I don't know what the source. It's a local publication uh, somewhere in Dallas. And he basically, he basically called you out and, and, and gave you a whole bunch of praise. I'll give you, I'll give you the quote. That's what the entrepreneurs did with the North American Soccer League. They did the mass marketing. In Dallas, the philosophy was anytime, anywhere. Bobby Moffitt, Mike Renshaw, Kenny Cooper, Dick Hall, they were the real missionaries of soccer. They loved the game and were proud of it and wanted to introduce it to as many as they could. Um, it seems like your entire career, both playing and then subsequent, uh, is almost that of proselytizer of the sport. Yeah, I think Clive, uh, Kyle hit that on the the head, and you must send me that quote. But um, we uh, we did, and we went out there, and we did some interesting things, and that's 
I mentioned the book that I'm writing about this is how the game grew. And uh, it was through those types of moments. You went out and you talked to kids and invited their family to come to games. And they started playing and it grew from there. It it feels though, and, and this is a bit ahead of before my time, I, I became a NASL fan roughly 75, 76 ish. Well, I remember seeing you in the game down in San Antonio, I, uh, <laughs> April the 18th, 1975. You were wearing a hat. I'm sure I was. Uh, but um, at, at nine years old at that. Uh, but uh, it, it did seem that, um, you know, that the Dallas uh, experience and your grassroots support of the sport, uh, Ron's uh, support and some of the other players I just mentioned, almost felt like, I guess, an anomaly, I think, maybe from some of the other teams in the league. Maybe, maybe almost you guys were the exception in terms of your trying to dig roots for the sport. Beyond just I think we were, and I think we got a lot of people. I know we got a lot of people that came down from other franchises to see how we were doing it. Not that we were greatly successful at the at the gate, though we were reasonable and we grew as the years went by. But um, I think that the common touch was what was uh, the main thing that we could say we were doing there and going out and kicking the ball around with people. But we tried everything we could do, and uh, in the end, we made a living for ourselves and most people, I mean, Cooper and Hall and Renshaw and myself and Neil Cohen, Freddie Garcia all still live in the Metroplex, Billy Phillips. And it was an ethos that went on. I think the only other people that did that as well as we did were the indoor team, the Dallas sidekicks. They followed the same pattern we did and they were quite successful too. So let's talk about actually going to the games. Um, so you're playing in 1970, 1971, um, it doesn't seem like that Franklin Field was sort of the magisterial pitch that perhaps uh, you got to play on in, in various locations in, in England. It was the best field in the league, probably. The rest were very, very poor. In Washington State, you had a baseball diamond in the middle of the field. So Franklin Field was actually quite good by well, comparison? Yes, it was. And it wasn't great, but it was good. It was, it was, it was wide enough what you what happens when you come over you play on a narrow field that's most been used by baseball or by football is the the field is so narrow that it's not good enough for expansive soccer it's 50 yards wide so that was another problem that's interesting i uh you certainly can regale and insert i mean the, the playing field surfaces in the united states has always been an issue and frankly some in some cases still is an issue today especially at the minor league minor league level, but it didn't seem to mm. just to stop you all from from having quite good seasons, including probably something that's most memorable to you, the the championship season of nineteen seventy one. Is there anything in particular that that you remember from from that um uh that team and, and that sort of special moment? But what was amazing was that we lost all of our top scorers. We just qualified for the playoffs in second place, which the following year in 72, only the top teams in each division qualified, so we wouldn't have. Uh, we lost our top scorers, uh, our Greek uh, scorer, Kurt Apostolidis and Tommy Jordan. They went back to... Uh, Tommy went to England and uh, to play for Portsmouth, and uh, Kurt went back to play for the... Greek national team. We lost them, and uh, other people had to step into. I had my jaw broken in Montreal halfway through the season, so I was out for oh, a good third of the season. And uh, we just pulled together. It was an amazing team effort. And what was amazing was the amount of games 
that we played, I think it was six games in uh, 14 days. It was 15 days to win the trophy. It was ridiculous, but we did it. But it was also ridiculous, too, because it seemed like that the playoffs that season were just dogged by interminably long games that were not decided by tiebreakers. Yes, we played the longest game, as you put down in your material, 176 minutes ever. It's still a record. And uh, people were walking around tired. For our listeners, we're talking about September 1st, 1971, uh, against the Rochester Lancers. It was, I don't know, something like 176 minutes or something until... 176 minutes. And after we played full-time, we just went into 15-minute increments. It was sudden death. And... uh, we happened to lose that game two to one. And uh, the fellow who was Meditary, Terry, who was the staff of Rochester, and they had won the title the previous year, um, he said to the press afterwards, That's, that should take care of Dallas now. Well, we beat them 3 1 down here. We hammered them here. And, and what uh, happened next? And then we went there and won 2 1 in that uh, 154 minute overtime <laughs> to win the series. But you're also burying the lead because who had the game-winning goal uh, to get you into the finals against Atlanta later on? Yeah, I must uh, confess to that. I did. <laughs> well, and that's interesting, too, because uh, it looks like you, you had quite a, a goal-producing season in 1970, but then in 71, your goal production kind of uh, diminished a bit. Is Was that because of a position change? Were you more defensive uh, position? I played every position for the team except goalkeeper. I'm too intelligent to be a goalkeeper, I've been told. <laughs> and uh, in 1970, I only played 10 games on the front line. The other 14 were at the back. So scoring eight goals, I thought was quite decent. Uh, then when I came down the next year, Ron had some good strikers, Kurt Apostolidis, Kurt, uh, Tommy Jordan, uh, we had another boy there uh, from Liverpool who was a good player up front, and he played me at the back mostly. So, uh, what was the um, what was the uh, the sense in Dallas? Did 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 the did the fans notice? Was it was it hard to break through? Did people even pay attention, given how relatively small footprint the league was at that point? Reading the publicity and the papers that I've got through the years, we've got great publicity, whereas MLS, the Dallas team here, don't get anywhere near the publicity that we got. We were very well covered in uh, in the media, and Gates did begin to increase. And uh, if you'd like to get an idea of that, I, I can tell you exactly. When I came here, uh, I heard that in, uh, I mean, the attendance in 67 was 4,700. The leagues folded and they joined together. The attendance is 46.99. That's the average attendance. And uh, by the time I finished playing in 77, it was 13.5. That's when Pelé came here. But Dallas's attendance in 68 was 2,900, 69, 2,900, 70, 2,200. It only started going up again in 71 with 33. And when I stopped playing in 77, it was 16,005. So that's a that's probably not only a testament to the growing popularity of the sport and the publicity and Pele and all those other other things, but frankly, probably your your grassroots efforts really starting to pay, bear some fruit. I think it had a lot to do with it. And one of the things in '76, we got a madman for a GM who was a mercurial. He was a workaholic called Dick Bird, 
Sure. And he went out there and beat the drums. And we had our own stadium built on SMU's campus in Dallas. And uh, we started getting the good gates then. It only lasted for a couple of years, and then it started to go down. And the team then moved back to Texas Stadium. One thing I wanted to mention about the uh, the the uh, game, uh, the 154 minute in uh, Rochester, where uh, we won and qualified, we ended up playing nine aside. Nine aside. Two, well, two players got into a fight before the end of regulation. Two players got into a fight in the middle of it. So I started off on the front line. You're asking about positions. One got sent off 10 against 10. I went back to the midfield. One got sent off. I ended up at fullback. So when I scored the winning goal and coming off a broken jaw, I trained so well, I was very fit. I was able to keep running points of the field. And that's how the goal came. So uh, happy so, memory. You brought back a nice one. Well, there. but so 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 not only are you dog, dog and tired from, from playing uh, uh, extra period after extra period, but you're also on a big field now with, you know, basically four less players. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, I, I'm surprised that, uh, that you were able to stand and literally come back a couple of days later and, uh, and move on to the, in the playoffs. It was amazing. Another thing connected to that is we talked about a game in Montreal. That's when I broke my jaw before the game. We had one of our bags of shoes, not turn up from the airport. And then we played the game, which ended in a nil-nil draw. It was a miserable game, and we scored two goals that the referees were never going to let us win. And I got a broken jaw right away in the second half. And I all of a sudden ended up on the other side of the field. And when I got there, I was by their bench. This is the uh, Olympics out of uh, Montreal. And then I walked away, and one of the people on the bench was dressed in a white suit, as I remember it. White hat, white tie, white shirt. He came up behind me on the field and kicked me. He was one of the club's directors. And uh, I turned around to say something to him, and spittles of blood came out of my mouth. You know how that happens? <laughs> he then had a red and white uniform on him. <laughs> anyway, after the game, apparently, I was in the dressing rooms. Uh, some of the uh, players said, hey, they threatened to come get us afterwards. And uh, we waited as long as we could in the dressing room. And then when we, we eventually went out there, to complete silence. At that moment, the van with our other shoes turned up. <laughs> it was a magical the, moment. The, and just the intensity, that's, uh, it, it's, it's hard to believe, but it's not hard to believe because you're, you're out there fighting and, and, and playing a game that you love and, and it, it clearly paid off in 1971. Uh, you know, how do you, um, so let, let's segue then because you obviously, came into an organization that had a lot of solid backing and, and stable ownership in, in the gentleman of Lamar Hunt in particular, and, and certainly his cohort, Bill McNutt. Uh, any any memories of them yeah. in the process? Yeah, they were very good owners. You knew that you were going to get your paycheck, and uh, lots of clubs I know suffered sometimes from that. Their intentions were good, and uh, after the world tour, they had a... They, uh, bankrolled in 67, 68, when the, the team went around on an incredible world tour, they could easily have thrown it up their hands and said, uh, you know, we've had enough. But they stuck with it. They had a vision, and uh, they made it succeed in the end. Any uh, any personal anecdotes of, of, of Lamar Hunt's uh, uh, generosity or, or steely spirit? I mean, obviously, he had a football team. He was also, you know, tending to and a, a and a newly integrated uh, uh, league into the, the NFL. Did, did you ever sense that 
the the, the Dallas Tornado were, you know, a, a secondary uh, exercise for him, or was he full on and full in, as it seemed? No, he, he was. Uh, he had the common touch, and uh, he remembered your family, your children's names. He was always personable. He could remember details. He was very uh, punctilious. He would uh, look at the field before the game and pick up stray items and things, and he would mention to you about different things that he felt could be done differently. We'll pass them on through Ron Newman. Uh, for example, paying attention during the national anthem, which to people from overseas is a strange thing to be standing in hearing the American uh, national anthem being played, and uh, he wanted us to be respect for which we did, but apparently some of us were squirming and jumping up and down, preparing ourselves. So we learned from that. He, he had a unique perspective on things. His family, and Norma, his wife, was very beautiful, is very beautiful still, and uh, both uh, in both ways, particularly as a nice person, and she always remembered your name. So uh, both of them were very, very good owners, and of course, Bill McNutt was not as personable, but uh, he was as honest as the day is long. And you could rely on Bill that when he said something, he, by, by goodness, by joke, he meant it. And I suspect you were solid, also... Solid you, owners. Well, by, I suspect you were also well taken care of during the holidays when fruitcake time came about. There's a few stories about that, but we have had some fruitcake. That is sure, yes. Fruitcake king. For our for our, for our listeners, yes, Bill McNutt uh, had uh, been a uh, was the the fruitcake baron, I guess, uh, and 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 owned a, a substantial uh, bakery and company focused on on the the delicious treat that is known as fruitcake. Um, Down in Waxahachie, Texas, which most people pronounce as Waxahachie. Your uh, your your uh, accent uh, belies your uh, your Texas spirit, Bobby. Um, so thank you. <laughs> your. Um, so I'd love to hear some of your general impressions as the league and, and the tornado kept marching through the 70s because, you know, and indeed you had a championship season in 71. Uh, you uh, did very well in, uh, uh, you know, in 72. I mean, you lost in the semifinals to the Cosmos. In 73, you were in the uh, the final game with, with uh, the Philadelphia Adams, the first-year team that basically came into Texas Stadium at the time and, and – and won the championship in your in your backyard. Did you did you get a sense that 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 the league and and the team and, and the whole sport of soccer was building up some uh, some real impetus, some real um, uh, some real action in the United States, or was it still kind of hard to sort of see? You could see that there was certainly a stabilization going on. Sixty nine, the league was in disarray. Phil Woosnam and uh, Clive Toy howled together. And uh, they went for the cheap route. 1970, they started bringing back some teams because in the 67 season they had for the USA League, that was Lamar's League, they had Dundee United play for the Dallas Tornado. Mm -hmm. But they had eight teams from overseas play in the USA League, or 10 teams. And they were West Ham and other teams from overseas. 69, by 68, they went into that one league and uh, that was 17 teams. That was a, not a very successful deal, and they thought the league had failed in seventy in sixty nine. It just survived seventy. It was a little bit more stable. Seventy one. Uh, it looked like it was going to go a bit bigger, and they they brought in the two new teams, uh, Rochester and uh, Washington. And by seventy two, it started to wobble again because we only played a fourteen game season, having played twenty four game seasons before, and. Uh, 
it stabilized. And in 73, it looked good. and Nobody dropped out of the league. Philadelphia came in. And then the next year, 74, we had a 15-team league. In 75, we had a 20-team league, some of which shouldn't have been brought in, mm-hmm. some of the franchises, quite frankly. And then in the middle of 75, bang, 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 here comes Palais. And uh, we get worldwide recognition, and we have players coming from all over the place. Standard went up, the gate started to go up, and uh, it became very much something that people were aware of. The uh, the national commentary was uh, not bad. You got some of it, but um, I always remember after the Cosmos game against uh, Ron Newman's team, I believe, 77 or 78 or 79. Fort Lauderdale Strikers. Will right? Turner and I were driving back from the office. Uh, he worked there, and I worked in the office. I did the soccer search, the paper, and the game programs. And Harold Cosell was on there. I think they had 77,000 at the game. And uh, it was against Fort Lauderdale. Yep. And uh, Harold Cosell said, I've got to tell you, soccer has arrived. And uh, it was one of those magic moments that you thought, yes, something magic has arrived. And it, it lasted for another three or four years. And then, unfortunately, due to bad management decisions, uh, it, it dropped off and it stopped after the 74 season. But yes, there were definite signs that it was there. But people say the league was a failure. It wasn't a failure. It fueled what came after it. It was there that all the people that started playing the game uh, during the NASL 1968 to 1984 got their love of the game and uh, played. And then when the MLS came out in 96. Those were the group of people I think who'd seen the game who really thought, this is it, we're going to go for it. And uh, so the NASL, that's part of my book, didn't fail. It just didn't succeed as an entity. If that makes any sense. Oh, it certainly does. Um, You could also make the argument, and I'm curious to hear your opinions as a player at the time, of some of the innovations that came in the game at that time as well. And and uh, frankly, if I had a soapbox, I would say some of the world game could use some of these innovations yet again. But, you know, 1973, there was the introduction of this 35-yard line, right, to sort of punch yeah. up, you know, the offense a bit or at least give, you know, the, the offense a bit more chance to kind of linger closer to the goal and perhaps produce a few more goals. How, how was you as a, as a classic traditional player? How, how did you and, and other players uh, around you sort of react to that sort of, I, I suspect some felt it was a gimmick, but how did you, how did you add it to play for you? Well, the year before, 72, it was an 18-yard line. Is that in true? 70, yeah, in 73, they introduced the 35-yard line. And uh, it was interesting. It didn't really change the game a great deal, quite frankly, and... Uh, I don't think the goal scoring was very much different in either of those events. But uh, it was something that FIFA granted permission to NESL to do. And then, of course, you had the shootout. Well, that came that came a number of years later. I mean, just just the fact that overtime actually uh, uh, was allowed to sort of creep in. But that, that shootout came in in 1977. That's a, another innovation that, that, frankly, anybody who's watched, you know, Champions League penalty No, the shootout or- came in in 1974. To decide a tied game. Uh, yeah, I think those were penalty kicks, though. PKs. Th- yeah, PKs, th- yeah. Correct. It's the, the terminology th- that confuses, right? Sure. But that 35 yard line version of the shootout, I think, was first in 1977. 
and arguably is a much more dramatic, uh, you know, uh, maybe even hokey, but but much more interesting and uh, I think action. Far more skillful, far more soccer related than a penalty kick. And so I loved it. Okay, why did why did you love it? Because of that, it was more skillful and it was more realistic. Well, I did my camps after I started the camps with the tornado. After I retired from the tornado, I ran my own camps. And that was part of the skills testing that we did. And when you saw Carlos in New York, what he did with the PK over the, uh, with the shootout was just remarkable. Do you remember that? I do. I was at that game. That's uh, for those of Were you really? Oh, um, remarkable. Well, uh, yeah, that was so uh, just to put that in context and, and, and people who are listening, obviously, you should go to YouTube to watch that. But this was a, a dramatic playoff game in 1978 where the Cosmos had actually lost uh, the first game uh, to the Minnesota Kicks by a score of nine to two. And they were coming back to Giant Stadium three days later to um, – play where at that time was uh, you played a full game and then the winner of if the, if the other team won that game you would go to a mini game which was an actual yeah. shortened 30 minute game but regardless if the games were tied and and, and sudden death didn't produce anything you went to this 35 yard line driven shootout and you have to look it up and there was another dramatic one in 79 the cosmos came on the short end of the stick during the playoffs but there's this one uh, moment where basically carlos alberto instead of driving, you know, on the ground with the ball and then taking a shot, he literally lifted it up with his leg in the air and let it bounce once or twice on the AstroTurf. And then gently on the second bounce, lifted that ball over the head of the Minnesota goalkeeper. I want to say it was Tina Letary. I'm not sure. And uh, it just, the place went bonkers. And, and I was convinced at that very moment, perhaps, you know, more than ever, that that is a far better way to, to try and, and win a game versus just the, a real crapshoot of a, of a penalty kick. Well, I agree. Well, there you go. Um, I, I can tell you that's the, that's the only amount of uh, lucidity you're going to hear from me t- uh, this evening. Um, but okay. give me – so as the NSL rolled on in the, in the 70s, I mean, you played with some tremendous players. I mean, you know, uh, any thoughts or remembrances of, of folks like Kenny Cooper? for example, or Steve Petcher, who was a rookie of the year, or Kyle Rote Jr., for that matter, who was, you know, literally the, the American boy star, I guess, in, in the early 70s before, you know, the Pele's and, the, and the, the superstars really came. We were playing at New York, 1973, and we had to beat New York uh, to get some more points, but we'd already qualified. So we went out there, and here is a scenario. If we had lost, Miami would have got in the playoffs. If New York win, they would be in the playoffs. So we play there, we go off, it's one nothing us, they score four goals, we come back and get two penalties. If Carr scores the goal, he becomes the scoring champion. It was the last game of the season. Ilya Mitic picked up the ball went to the center spot, and Ron Newman was screaming at him, Kyle takes it, Kyle takes it. We had to get the ball from Ilian, give it to Kyle. Kyle took the kick, scored the goal. From there, he's the scoring champion. And uh, from that, he gets an agent, and he goes into the Superstars competition, and he wins it three times out of four. Without that penalty kick, he wouldn't have had that. Kenny Cooper was the most consistent keeper in the league, and he had t- the game of his life many times uh, against the New York Cosmos in 75. 
uh, against Moscow Dynamo in 72. He was just a remarkable goalkeeper and uh, still is in the area. Um, Jimmy Ryan played here. Uh, he played for Mansion Light. It has a 1968 European Cup winner's medal. Uh, Alan Hinton uh, came here and he then went the next year to Vancouver, played for England, the Derby County top player. Uh, Jeff Bourne, who played for Derby County. Uh, lots and lots of players. Bobby Hope, Scots boy, he played here. Very, very good. And then the players you play against, the, the George Bess and the Bobby Moores. I played against Bobby Moore and uh, Jeff Hurst and Martin Peters in the UK. Played against uh, Hurst and... Bobby Moore here, and of course, George Best, who was absolutely incredible, Pelé and Canalia, many, many good players, and a lot of them were not past their prime. Some were, but you also had the up-and-coming people like Peter Wise and uh, the Hill Boy that played for Manchester United, who went on to be stars back home, but they started off here. And Beardsley was the same way. He went to Liverpool and Newcastle. So there were some very, very good players here. And when it got to 6, 76, 78, 9, and 80, standard was very high. It was very, very good. David Chabick, who played here, mm-hmm. then went on to Fort Lauderdale, talked about it was a pleasure to go. He, he worked under Ron Newman as the assistant coach. He said, I had Muller and Kubias to work with on the field. And he. <laughs> It was remarkable just listening. He was so enthusiastic. The fellow that's seen all these things was still enthusiastic about going in there and, and coaching all these players. Brian Kidd and so on and so forth. I mean, I, I, I it's 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 really true. I, I you know, I, I think, you know, uh, people who were fans uh, back then of, of, of those games, I, I think were in some respects almost spoiled in terms of, I mean, you had some of the world's best players. I mean, bar none uh, playing in the North American Soccer League. And, and you know, in some cases, frankly, somewhat anonymously, right? I mean, you know, George Best was obviously, you know, at the time, one of the world's best players, if not arguably the best at the time. Uh, and, you know, and he could quietly live his life on Huntington Beach in California and, and not sort of be bothered by, you know, the paparazzi that he probably would be back at Manchester United or, or wherever in Europe. Yes, yes. A number of players said that, and uh, that's very, very true. That's what Mourinho said when he first went to London with Chelsea. I can walk the streets and nobody accosts me. Nobody tries to give me a hard time. They just let me be me. All right. I got a couple of specific questions, and then I want to then segue into uh, how your uh, your life and career uh, has uh, uh, transformed since your, your playing days. But um, yeah, you mentioned playing against the Cosmos a number of times and certainly Pelé. Um, I, I really have a personal curiosity about that Pelé's first game which was in uh, July, I think, of 1975. June the 15th. June the 15th. So if I'm not mistaken, so correct me if I'm wrong, um, it, the game was held on a Sunday afternoon. It was on CBS television network uh, at, at the crumbling Randall's Island Downing Stadium off the Triborough yes. Bridge in, in New yep. York City. Was that game an exhibition, not a regular yes. season game? And, and how exhibition. did that come about? Because you played in that game. Yeah, we played in San Antonio the night before. And then we flew that next day to New York. And you kept thinking, if we were fogged in, what would they do for a team? And uh, we played there. They painted the dirt green with a spray because it was CBS television. And uh, they say 50 million people across the world actually watched that game. So walk me through that, though. So you're playing in San Antonio. Did you win that game? 
Unfortunately, uh, they only won two games to start off, and they beat us twice, 2-1. We lost 2-1 that evening. We, we played very tentative, and I think some of that had to do with going the next day to play against the Cosmos. So did you – and then, and then what did you do? Did you fly that – over – you flew that night, I'm guessing? No, the next morning. That was an evening kickoff. It was a 7.30 evening kickoff in San Antonio. We probably wouldn't have got a plane. That, that's this. That's mind-boggling. I mean, you know, the old NASL, you know, obviously had a uh, largely, especially in the, the the middle and the latter part of the decade, had a compressed schedule. You really talk about it, maybe a four-month-long-ish kind of of schedule, but yeah. uh, you know, three-day turnarounds and and as you mentioned before, very long travel, you know, distances that you know Europeans certainly not used to. But I, I can't imagine how you would have been expected to play a league game you know, 2,000 miles away and then be fresh as a daisy, so to speak, for a nationally televised event the next day? Perhaps the tighter we were, and the league wasn't as important to what was happening there, perhaps the tighter we were would have behoved the Cosmos who could have got four or five goals on us. I don't know. Uh, but it happened at the last minute, as a lot of those things tended to, and it worked out to be very, very good for the game. In fact, the publicity was remarkable that came from that. And the reason I know it's June the 15th, I literally wrote a little bit about it today and edited it. So that's the reason I know. We did play the Cosmos back in Dallas, though, on July the 27th. And we had 26,000 people here in that Texas Stadium. And did you win that game? We went to penalty kicks. It was uh, one of those things where Pelé left after about 70 minutes and that was the game gone and we, the game was tied at the end so some silly so-and-so said well let's play extra time and we did and that was tied so then they said we'll go to a shootout so it's almost 12 o'clock and nobody wanted to be there after Pele left <laughs> so we should have just said it's a, a, a draw which the first one June the 15th in New York was 2-2 okay I got another question for you and that's the indoor game did you play uh, indoors uh, during 71, 75, 76 when the Tornado were, were part of the various tournaments that were the league was experimenting with? 71, I was out of the country and the team, the Tornado, went to St. Louis and won the first NASL tournament. There was just four teams involved. 75, they had a tournament. Four different groups, uh, Tampa, San Jose, Vancouver, I believe, and Dallas. And they each had four teams in it. So there was a round robin. You win it in your place, which we did. We then went. That was early January. That was Jan- January the 24th and 26th. You played two games on the team with the best goals record of one. Uh, and then you qualify for the playoffs. So there were four teams, one from each of the four groupings. And then you played the semifinals and the finals and the place for third place. And uh, that was brutal. Uh, the refereeing was poor. The tackling was bit off the wall. There were three broken ankles in that tournament, 14th through the 16th mm. of March. Uh, it needed to be regulated, and it wasn't. But that was something the NESL wooed but never did properly. And in the end, that was one of the poison chalices that put them out of business, I think. So how did you, how did the players adapt to this scheme? Because obviously it's a, a relatively foreign concept. I mean, you have boards and you've got checking and you got a lot of, you know, much more physical, certainly a lot more, 
you know, stopping and starting and running. It's a lot more, you know, a lot more uh, creativity, I guess, with the ball in short spaces. Uh, yet you're mentioning broken ankles and whatnot. I, I got to think it was somewhat of a challenge for players not used to those confined spaces and that kind of rough play indoors. USA has the saying, you learn by playing the game, and you learn by literally playing the game. Ron Newman was always thinking up ideas outdoor and indoor, so he gave us a bit of an edge there. Uh, on the physical side, I think teams were just uh, unsure, and uh, it's okay if you get bumped on an outdoor grass field, you can fall on grass, but indoors you can fall on turf, but you can also get rammed into the boards. And so it is a different mindset. You've got different shoes, different surfaces, shorter periods, and uh, smaller goals, bigger goals, taller goals, wider goals, smaller. <laughs> so who knows what's going to happen there? But um, it was bedlam to begin with, quite frankly, and gradually got sorted out. In 76, there was another tournament until they disbanded it for about three years. I don't think they played again until 79. And uh, the 76 tournament was just, oh, we're not going to spend much time in it because we wasted a lot of pre-season in 75 working on indoor. And it left us a tangled outdoor schedule to work through. So, but they, there wasn't as much importance put on it in 76. And uh, I think that was pretty accurate because here was the problem. What they were thinking, Rusin had said that he wanted to have a season January through uh, March mm-hmm. out indoors and then go straight into the April through August season outdoors. Uh, the players, you wouldn't have any players left. <laughs> They'll be injured. Yet, that's what uh, the NASL faced in the early 80s as the MISL really started to gain some some traction. Uh, there was that whole, hey, you know, we're the originators of the of the indoor sport to begin with. Thus, we should play both indoors and outdoors, right? They lost the plot there. They they should have done it earlier if they were going to do it. And I think they should have done it after the outdoor season when it's in many parts, the climbs in many parts of the country are different. I know it's hard to get indoor arenas, but they were available. I think they made a, a big mistake by not doing that. I really do. Yeah, I, the the sport of indoor soccer to me, uh, you know, in the MISL, which is a whole another ball of wax that uh, uh, we've got a bunch of other guests lined up for, uh, in the months to come, uh, is, you know, uh, I think people kind of almost conveniently forget that, you know, as the NASL, uh, petered out in 84 and 85, I mean, you literally the top flight professional soccer in this country was the MISL indoor soccer. And, and frankly, some people yes. even were resigned to the fact that that might be what soccer would be going forward in the United States and, and outdoor wouldn't. But you talk about what built the game. We did camps. I was in charge of the first camps here in 70 in Dallas, and that built, that went very, very well. I wasn't sure if I was ever coming back after the 70 season, and I came back by myself without my family for three summers. Uh, the end of 73, I got a job uh, with McDonald's with a TV show, which lasted for nearly two years, Soccer Locker. That and I have, looked on, I have looked on YouTube, and I have not been able to find it, Bobby. I think the world needs to see... <laughs> It's Some gone. old episodes of that show. I've got three of the uh, CDs left. The station doesn't have any. I don't have any. But we were just moving so quickly then because after I lost the job, they they gave the money. Can you believe this? They took my money away and gave it to Ronald McDonald and the Ronald McDonald fan. I can't believe that. <laughs> but we had a good run. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, 
it's the 76-77 season. You're asking about what I did after I finished. I finished playing in 77. Uh, 82, I brought in the Dallas Americans from the American Soccer League into Dallas so the American players could get playing time. And that was basically a, a second division league that effectively was kind of the only thing around outdoors as the NASL collapsed, yeah. correct? I went to Lamar Hunt before we let, we actually bought the franchise, and I was not the money man. The other people I brought in were. And there were a lot of us working on that scheme. I said, Lamar, can we call it the Dallas Tomato? We said, I'd rather you didn't. So we didn't do that. But prior to that, I opened a shop, and then I started going into coaching, and that's when I opened my own camp, so 79, 80, and up to 2011. Um, that's what we did was camps, and then we had soccer tours. We took at least 6,000 Americans, that's players, coaches, and parents overseas to a lot of the European tournaments. And then uh, we retired five and a half years ago. Well, I, I, you know, it's it's clear that if you grew up uh, in the 70s and 80s, even the 90s and 2000s in, in the Dallas Metroplex area um, and and had any inclination or interest or participation in the sport of soccer, uh, I doubt seriously that you would not have heard of the name Bobby Moffat. Uh, through um, all those uh, grassroots efforts way back when as a player, and then obviously afterwards, um, you know, it's pretty clear to me that um, uh, that your uh, passion for the sport, um, you know, and and your book, which you're you're working on, which we hope we can have you on again to to talk about once it's uh, hopefully uh, published or uh, in, in publicity. Um, it's pretty clear that uh, you know people like yourself were and are uh, quite responsible for any of, I think, the, the current success of the sport in the United States today. Um, and, you know, I, in many respects, almost, uh, you know, unheralded and, and, and needs to be further celebrated. So, you know, beyond the Dallas area, uh, perhaps a, a few folks will, will, will recognize some of the contributions that folks like yourself have done uh, for the good of the sport in this country, which, you know, is still on the ascendance. Right. Well, thank you, and I think it is still on the assignments. And you look back at the things you've left. Uh, we went over in 1980 on tour, and my father was in the British Royal Navy, and he invited a British Royal Navy team, youth team, to come to the Dallas Cup. So they've been coming for the last, uh, since 1981. Four years ago, they stopped, and United Services team took them over every year. They come, they're hosted by the families, and I was pleased that it's good for this British-American relationship to, to go well. I wanted to stay together, never to fracture. So that was one thing. And the other thing that I've left that's permanent here is the Flame Fest, which is a tournament I put on with the Flame Soccer Club. And many, many people worked on that, and it's still going and raising lots of money for people. So, so it was a pleasure when the Flame Fest and Dallas Cup come around, and the MLS season. I've already seen their games in the CONCACAF tournament. Uh, to see those things come around and think, well, yeah, that's good. Let's see what uh, what is going to happen now and uh, keep in touch. And that's when you run into your old friends. Uh, I was at the CONCACAF game against uh, Pachuca last Wednesday, and there was Billy Phillips, and there was Neil Cohen, and the week before it was Gordon Jago. Mm. Gordon Jago, you must get on about the indoor, by the way. Love to. Um, and I will follow up with you afterwards to get some phone numbers. Um, so let me ask you one last sort of basic question. What, what are your impressions of professional soccer in the United States uh, now? And, and could you ever have imagined it would be at the level it is now uh, when you first came here in 1970? 
No, and I couldn't imagine that it would be like it is in Britain now, the way it is and across the world. And uh, I'm saddened that there's too much money in the game. And there's a big thing that saddens me is the cheaters that say they're Indian when they're really not. But um, the thing that worries me about the MLS is that they didn't want to make the same mistakes as the MESL. And I think they are. I think they're inviting too many people. And I don't think the standard has risen as it should have. I don't want to see it diluted as much as it has been in the past. And I, I know that the ownership owns all the teams. Uh, what I'm worried about is the flair. I want. I think we've succeeded here, not just when we get gates and the owners are satisfied, but when the game begins to be played with flair. That's what I'm looking for in the American game. And uh, there are some good players all of a sudden coming along, but they're playing in Europe. They're not yep. playing up at Silic and Woods and a few others. They're not playing here. So I'm you, a bit concerned about that trend. Do you think promotion and relegation would help the process here? That's a very interesting debate to have, as I'm sure you're aware. And uh, I don't think it's in the American DNA to have uh, promotion. I mean, can you imagine the uh, Atlanta? They come in the first year, they draw 55,000 the first week, they have a bad season. The next season, they're playing in a lower league. I, I don't think it fits the... Uh, financial picture very well uh good one for discussion yeah i yeah one has to wonder i there's a there's there's a part of me though that that you you have to give a a fair amount of credit to what don garber and the owners have done with major league soccer i mean that to be able to grow the sport and have these uh, don garber has done amazingly well i congratulate him oh certainly uh but but there is an artificiality right to the to to the support of the league when it's centrally owned and 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 you could argue the competitiveness and all that. So I think it'll be an interesting number of years to come to sort of see how how 24 and, and beyond perhaps teams, which is NASL comparison territory, uh, can succeed mm. perhaps maybe with a few of those artificial uh, support mechanisms removed. From I the suppose process. the answer to the league being a, the strong league is when MLS starts buying top name players at the top of their game. Yep. That would be the answer if the game has arrived. Not just one or two, but quite a few. One every club or so on and so forth. And I think that would fuel whatever happens. Well, as we segue here to uh, uh, the closing here, I, I do want to sort of bring up one little piece of information that I thought was interesting. Um, Bobby Moffat has uh, uh, not told us about uh, a book that he actually wrote back in, I think it's 1974, called The basic soccer guide. And and I don't know if you've checked recently, Bobby, but the book is available on Amazon. There are copies yes, out there. Yes, I know. Yeah. And um, I was, I, that was amazing. Yeah, I, I wrote it and it just flew. Everything, we've been so lucky. I mean, coming over here was lucky and getting to run the camps was lucky, which was a precursor for my future career. And uh, there were no books available, I thought were written for the American people. So I wrote the book and it it sold. It sold ten thousand. It actually sold fifty thousand, if you believe that. Well, I um, I will put a link uh, to the book. Uh, I, I doubt any royalties will be coming your way, but um, no, there's out of print now. I think, but what what there is on Amazon now are old books. But there's another one called Intermediate Soccer too. Well, very good. So there, there there's a, a, some some history there uh, to be found uh, for some of our completists out there who uh, who revel in uh, North American Soccer League um, uh, history. There is one danger, though, with buying either of those books. That is? But if you pick it up too roughly, it might disintegrate. (laughs) 
Well, clearly your memories and your enthusiasm for the sport have not disintegrated one bit. And I can't thank you enough for uh, being part of our fledgling podcast. I mean, this is maybe our fifth or so interview and, and episode. And um, I, I will tell you that that soccer is probably the major reason for why I'm actually doing this. As I said in my emails and in our previous conversations, um, you know, my days as a, as a kid watching the Cosmos and watching you, I believe, at a game at Giant Stadium against the Cosmos, um, uh, you know, it was really a um, uh, the impetus for for conversations like this. And um, I can't thank you enough for regaling us with some of your memories. And um, I look forward to keeping in touch and perhaps maybe uh, another conversation down the line. Tim, it's been a great pleasure. Call me anytime you wish. You are kind, sir. Bobby Moffat, everybody. Thank you very much. Okay, there you have it. There's our chat with Bobby Moffitt from the old Dallas Tornado. Uh, some great stories there. You know, I learned uh, quite a bit there, and I, I consider myself somewhat of a completist when it comes to the old NASL, but uh, the uh, the insight around the um, experimentation with the uh, offsides line, uh, I think everybody recognizes that in 1973, as we discussed, the 35-yard line experiment began, but what I didn't know was in 1972, in the middle of the season, uh, which Bobby mentioned, they started to play around with that offsides line being at the 18-yard line. Uh, that is something that uh, that escaped me. I, I'm also really intrigued with uh, more of that story about that first game uh, Pele played for the New York Cosmos and the whole rigmarole that got the Talos Tornado to uh, hop on an airplane that day from San Antonio and, and get there in time. For a national broadcast, um, I suspect that we're going to find out more little bits and pieces about that particular game uh, with other guests as we uh, as we move along. So I look forward to uh, going further on on those and, and many other things in the old NASL, uh, as well as all kinds of other professional soccer stuff uh, in the weeks and months to come. So thanks for listening. Uh, this is Tim Hanlon, and we appreciate your listenership. Find us on social media, download us multiple times, rate, review us. We love it. Thank you. We can't thank you enough. And we'll see you on the next episode coming up soon. Take care.